Welcome to Life Extension. Life Extension is my series where I interview the scientists and pioneers of longevity. We're investigating the new frontiers of longevity for people and planet. This time we've got Spring Baruz and Andy Lee, their wife and husband, neuroscientist and computer scientist, co-founders of two companies, Neuroinitiative and Vincere Biosciences. And they're going to talk to us about the role of software in discovery. They're going to talk to us about Parkinson's disease, but in a fascinating way, the base level mechanisms and theory of what causes it, how it happens, how it unfolds, but also their angle on attacking it, which is mind-blowing. It is a hardcore computational biology approach. These guys are running software that has modeled neurons from the ground up. And it's an approach that I think in future years, you're going to see everyone doing for everything. It's just revolutionary. I can't wait to get into it. So the backstory of Vincere Bio is, you know, maybe that's the place to begin, right? Because Spring, for you as the CEO, but also as the neuroscientist among you, it must it must have started in the lab or in your PhD program, or maybe there's like a family story because it seems like you've committed now 15 plus years of your life to Parkinson's disease. And that's, I mean, a real dedication. Yeah, my uncle had Parkinson's when I was growing up, but that was actually not the main reason I went into it. The main reason that I went into it was just because it was really interesting as I was exploring during my PhD work. And then it sort of evolved to be much larger than that, you know, and I got interested in age-related diseases. But the company started, you know, as you mentioned, I even did my PhD work on Parkinson's disease. So my interest in neurodegenerative disease and age-related disease started before we formed the company. But this, again, is an unusual thing in that we didn't actually take out any of the technology or any of the assets out of an academic institution. So I was doing my postdoc at the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida, and the Mayo Clinic at, at that time, and, and they continue to have really good researchers, but at the time had a lot of really good genetics researchers. And it was pretty clear that genetics was leading the way for at least Parkinson's disease research. And so while I was there doing my postdoc and Andy was, uh, you know, independently working on in his own career, this is up until this point, our careers were completely separate. He's working in fintech, you know, doing computer science, and I'm working in life sciences, working on Parkinson's disease. And in the evenings, we would sort of compare notes. And he had all of this really cool new technology that they're applying to, you know, the mortgage industry, which the technology really cool, the industry, you know, to me, a little bit less so. And so we were putting our heads together and saying, how can we actually apply this technology to something that can be very positively impactful for human life, which, you know, that was kind of the start of our idea. And it was first evenings and, and nights. And then we were able to, you know, I came in full time, we were able to bootstrap because we're a husband and wife company. So this sort of allowed us to get a little bit of preliminary data, you know, prototypes and, and whatnot. And then that, you know, led into a bunch of computational tools that led into actual, you know, small molecule assets. And here we are several years later. Andy can give you his perspective from uh, yeah, <laughs> from the other side. Sounds so easy. So I, I have to ask for a second opinion, perhaps. Yeah, it's, I mean, the exciting thing, I mean, I, I started writing code in elementary school, and so it's always been just a part of my life. And one of the, the nice things about software is you can point it at anything. And so it gives you this great flexibility to kind of attack different problems. And I've gone through a few industries, uh, and 
once it kind of clicks that it can be used to improve the health and life of people, and then even further, a few years ago when it really clicked that biological age itself is measurable and modifiable, like it just becomes all-consuming. And so I, mean, I, I found myself at some points not able to talk about anything other than the life sciences stuff that I was working on on the weekends. And so it, it hits, hit a point where it was like, all right, time to go all in. And so we've been about five years now, both of us full-time in the company and, and uh, continuing to, to build an advanced toward therapeutics that can help people. Let's see if I've got it. So the thing that really sets you guys out on your journey is when you realize that on the bench top, the work that you were doing spring could take a really different direction if you just embraced a computational biology game plan, whether for whatever it was, whether it was for drug discovery or a different kind of diagnosis, or I mean, you were just thinking, hey, software is cool. We should be using more of it over here in, in neuroscience. Yeah, no, I mean, I think uh, a lot of companies are born out of frustration. And this is no exception in that, you know, we have the the biology behind some of these diseases and age related diseases is quite complex. And Parkinson's disease is no exception to that. So, you know, we have all of this data, and there's really no good way to kind of sift through the data and sift through the complexity of the disease without using these tools and just to, to be able to see. And now, you know, we're seeing the tools start to get incorporated into life sciences. But, you know, this is talking about seven years ago when we really started to think about it. It was quite rare. You have the data from the geneticist that comes in. Okay, you know, this mutation causes can cause Mendelian forms of the disease. What does that mean? What does that mean to other forms that are not caused by that particular mutation? What does this gene do? You know, the protein that is encoded by the gene, what does it do? So there are so many, every discovery in science leads to a million other questions, and a lot of those other questions aren't answered. And just the process of drug discovery, you know, I'm sure you know, is this 20-year long process that's billions of dollars of costs. And a lot of that is due to these kind of inefficiencies that are at every step of the way. And so we just sort of ask ourselves, what are the best tools for each of these inefficiencies and how can we fix them? And it just so happened that, you know, the computational tools can, in fact, alleviate some of those issues, but not all. In the big backdrop, we're going to get to talking about aging and longevity as like as a macro question and about you know, aging related diseases and neurodegenerative, right? We'll get there. But here we're, we're starting on this really fascinating juncture of what your business, I guess, that you started. Neuro Initiative seven years ago is not been shared biosciences now, right? So you started with like a business that or a project that was a research operation. And like, can we zoom in more? So like, all right, there was some big insight about software. It's all these questions in, in science. All right. With Parkinson's, you have a lot of questions like what's going wrong with protein? What's this? What's that? What about the diagnostics? Like what tools and what question and what data? The beginning stages, one of our, our poor drivers was this idea that failures in these neurodegenerative diseases were, you know, one of the key factors is going after the wrong targets. And, you know, we see the field, you know, synuclein aggregates in disease. So if we can just stop synuclein aggregation, we'll, we'll stop the progression. Same thing happened in Alzheimer's with amyloid. And, you know, everybody sort of piles on this one clue. But the biological systems are a lot more complex than that. And you know, we've got each of these mutations that, that we know is somehow causative for the disease exists within this interactome of 
25,000 other genetically encoded proteins along with all of the lipids and metabolites and everything else that, that go into this system. And so you, you really need to zoom out a bit and look at all of that in context. And it's we started with looking at some of the, the established approaches like systems biology, modeling or metabolomics, and we found those tools were really insufficient to unravel the the issues. There are too many variables to properly build a model. Some of the data points we just don't have real world measurements for. So we had to create a new tool at that point to better understand the biological system so that we could see from a perturbation or from a patient's omics profile what goes wrong in that system to try to figure out what might be uh, potentially druggable targets. And so that was kind of the birth of NeuroInitiative and creating these tools around modeling the biological system to find better targets. From there, though, it's a progression toward ultimately you need to do something with these targets. Targets in themselves are not particularly valuable. And so we moved on into trying to find small molecule therapeutics. And once we had some of those, from a business perspective, made sense to separate those out. And so that's Vinceri is the small molecule therapeutic company that's continuing the development of these assets. And then Neuroinitiative is our kind of computational think tank that kind of keeps moving along with the process. And we've continued to build new tools that uh, can accelerate the entire process as we go. So it's model, better model, targets, and then molecules. So you start with model and you're like, hey, the models for this stuff suck. People are just guessing what the targets are. Let's make a better model. And model is basically a long list of data points that need to be tracked over time, something like that. And people were using oversimplified models. And you're like, no, 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 let's try the whole system, the whole metabolism. Let's get every kind of measurement we can get on on these folks. Am I right? It's like, you're just, let's get a lot more data. And then let's use machine learning to go find out which variable actually is really important here that people were overlooking because the investigator's intuition was like leading them over here. But it turns out these five things in this particular configuration and this particular genome with this particular whatever metabolic history, suddenly you see XYZ happen. Aha, we found something new. So you're trying to do a new kind of discovery to find what the target might be. Am I in the right ballpark? When we talk about models in in drug development, we actually rarely use computational models to inform target discovery or a little bit more molecule discovery. But the majority of what's used are animal models, which have not been terribly predictive for particularly neurodegenerative diseases, but even other diseases. So, you know, you see something is protective in an animal model and it doesn't hold up in clinical trial or vice versa. And alternatively, now people use a lot of cells from patients. So iPSCs, for example, um, which are pluripotent stem cells from patients. And you can take those and you can grow them into different types of cells because we don't have access to, let's say you want brain cells. You can't drill a hole in somebody's skull and grab some cells and say, okay, let me experiment on this, right? So you're sort of limited to those two approaches at the moment, even. And the computational was kind of a third approach where we can actually take, say, omics data from that particular brain region that is affected in this disease and model that in the computer, you know, using all of the things that Andy just mentioned. So it's really kind of a third leg that allows us to translate some of the things that we see in animals or in IPSCs. And we can even simulate those, you know, we can simulate human versus mouse and see what kind of differences we see so that we know when we go from mouse to human, what might we, you know, be able to expect. 
but say a little more about this model, right? Because then the the way you're illustrating it, you've gone further than my like little sketch in, in my attempt to understand it, right? I was thinking, hey, it's a big spreadsheet with a lot of variables. You're going to track them over time and you'll find some people get Parkinson's, some don't. And you'll say, okay, my model now has some predictive power that if these things are true, then you get Parkinson's. But now for in, in your example, if this is going to actually work as a computational model that might sit alongside an animal model, you've got interventions and things you might do and you're going to predict what happens if I put this drug here or I, because you've done a bunch of experiments and put that stuff in your model as well. Is that Andy, how it works? Yeah, it's actually pretty interesting. So we, we kind of came up with a unique approach here and unique enough that we actually have U.S. patent on the, the platform where we can blend the a particle physics engine to simulate a 3D spatial environment that includes the cell membrane along with that being packed with biochemical entities like all of the, the proteins and the organelles like the mitochondria and the lysosome and the um, transport vesicles. And then use the physics engine to play out the movement of those entities through time within that three-dimensional space and then couple that with a knowledge-based set of rules, what happens when those entities interact with each other. So if two proteins bump into each other in this cellular space, you get some biological outcome. It might be a kinase that bumps into a substrate and it passes off a phosphate group to you know, phosphorylate the substrate, or they might bind together and form a complex. And now this complex of two proteins joined have a different behavior than either of them do independently. And so this gets into some of the really interesting complexity of the biological system that you can't do with differential equations in the traditional systems biology modeling, where we can actually track the state changes of the entities and then do that across the entire genome in kind of a real-time emulated cell in the computer. And so then that when you take that system and you apply the omics data from patients to give you the quantities. We can tell how many of each of those proteins are in the system at the starting point. We can use experimental data to tell us kind of roughly how many synaptic vesicles are inside a synaptic bouton and what the, the size of a mitochondria versus a lysosome versus that kind of morphological layout can be experimentally measured. And so you feed all of that in and now you can simulate these different cell types and see a granularity that is just not available on any other platform. So it is a functional model of the cell and lots of cells and the stuff that's flowing in and available to the cells. And you're basically fast forwarding the interactions and trying to figure out what happens and then come back, put a different thing in the. So it's really a simulate. You've created an environment for simulating the life of of neurons. So maybe now I'm getting closer to this to this model. This isn't just like some aggregate big data model where you're looking for some signal. You actually have some a really bottom-up simulation cell by cell. Yeah. And then with that, you can pretty easily use the omics from a Parkinson's patient versus a healthy human and see what's disrupted. And then you can start to iterate on molecular switches with virtual compounds where you might not even have any real small molecules that could modulate these targets, but say, what would happen if I increased or decreased the activity of the enzymes? You can iterate through testing all of the enzymes in the system and see, will modulating any of these restore the, the function of the system? We're doing this on, on weekends, I guess, and getting yourself excited about it. You guys started discovering that this thing actually kind of worked and thought, holy crap, we should start a company around this. And spring the neuro initiative as a company, the idea was you would 
make discoveries using your computing environment and sell them to other companies or to pharma or hopefully you discover a molecule? I mean, what was the idea? And, and, and get me to the genesis of, okay, now Vincere has got to go out and make, make drugs. Yeah. So we had actually at the genesis of this neuro initiative company, we had multiple different avenues where we thought might make business sense. One was to just develop tools and license those tools out for other companies. Two was provide services. So basically we use the tools for other companies to come up with potential therapeutics or targets. And three was to develop our own therapeutics. And we were too small really to go after all three of those. So we sort of did very short trials of each of them. So we went out and talked to, you know, multiple pharma companies and, you know, they were like, oh, this is really interesting. You know, does it actually work? You know, so we did a bunch of grants. We actually worked with my colleagues at the Mayo Clinic in multiple projects funded by the Michael J. Fox Foundation. Also, we worked with the University of Oxford just to show that this works because it's such a new concept. That's always the first question. You know, we did perform some services for other groups as well. But ultimately, you know, and I remember sitting down, it was the three of us who are on the board of uh, Vinceri now sitting down and going, you know what, it, we know this works, let's just go forward and start to develop some therapeutics. And that was the genesis of Vinceri and us, you know, actually making small molecules to take forward. I guess it's the conventional thinking. I mean, once you have an angle, you got to make a drug. I mean, is that more or less the way you commercialize or monetize any good ideas in the, in the land of, of um, in, in the realm you're in? Like you can't build a pure software company? Yeah, and when you look at the financials, the economics of the different business streams, the upside of an effective therapeutic is just orders of magnitude higher than what you can get from licensing software. And, you know, within the pharma companies, I think there's hesitancy to adopt new technologies. I think as these enterprises are pretty good at licensing therapeutics, they know how to license molecules, they don't know how to license software, and they've got internal teams competing on those things. It's kind of interesting if you look back at that, like around the time we formed Neuro Initiative, there were kind of a wave of computational drug discovery companies going through YC, other areas there. And we, we kind of in parallel watched everybody burn a lot of time and energy on trying to license software and over the last couple of years have started to all pivot toward internal drug discovery or now trying to claw back some royalties of therapeutics that have come out of their platforms. And that's really difficult to do if you've started as a service provider or a technology provider to then realize some of the upside. So that's where we kind of just came to that acknowledgement that if the upside's in the drugs, let's focus on getting drugs that work. Yeah, let's explore this a little bit, right? I mean, because as topical as it is, the the sort of family of aging-related breakthroughs that people are getting ex excited about, the economics of the, the science and industry connected to it is hugely driven by the pharmaceuticals business model, more or less, right? And so as you guys are sitting and making really big progress on this like huge problem for so many people around the world, you're thinking, oh man, we've got like a way to figure out what drugs are going to work. We have the software. Like what if we had all the resources of all these huge companies that are out blindly searching for, you know, some kind of molecule, like we, we could, and you just can't find a way to sell them the software at any kind of reasonable impact. And then there's probably the difficulties of an enterprise sale on top of that, apart from the economics, right? Then you think, well, all right, we got to just go make a drug. And it's going to ideally be some molecule and it'll get commercialized by one of these giant companies once we make this drug. 
However, it is a fairly challenging path that you've taken, right? So like the payoff would be fantastic if indeed you're right about the target you select and the molecule you find and that it is in fact, you know, safe and effective and it can be produced in all the different gates it has to go through. But it could also not work out, right? I mean, isn't it, and there's some vanishing percentage of, of molecules that end up even working at all. And then commercially, I mean, what are the stakes? Like how, what gives you a shot? You're a small operation. I mean, these, these, you know, when people find molecules, they've churned through billions usually to find the, the blockbuster ones, right? I want to pause for a minute here and talk to you about Life Extension Ventures. It's the reason I'm doing this series for In the Know. Life Extension Ventures is a venture fund dedicated to working towards the longevity of people and planet. The future of humanity depends on our planet surviving. And its potential can really only be unlocked if we focus on some of the technologies, some of the breakthrough science that's making it possible for us to live longer and better lives. Life Extension Ventures is a venture fund focused on supporting visionary founders that are working towards longevity of people and planet. It's the future of humanity that they're working on and we wanna back them. I spent a lot of time as a science person, as an academic, as a student, and then I spent even more time becoming a company builder and venture investor. And with Life Extension Ventures, I'm bringing both of those things together with my partner, Yaki Berenger. It's got a similar story. And we're out there finding folks who want to build companies that can really make a difference for human life. We'll need this planet if we want to survive, and we'll need to focus on these breakthrough technologies if we really want to unlock human potential. So here we are doing it and sharing with you this episode is uh, some of the breakthrough science that we've been learning about and trying to back. I think that competition is always there. And I actually think the competition is good. You're rarely competing against, in our experience, others in the field. You're, there are so many things that can affect drug development just within you know, scientific risk and execution risk that competition risk is lower, I would say, within the... Oh, I totally agree. And you know, that was my question. It's like, just what are the chances that your thing works? We try to de-risk at every step of the way. And that's actually one of the places where we have really tried to utilize the technology, you know, continue to utilize. So the simulation platform that we talked about is one of the tools. That was the first tool that we made. That was, that was the first problem we had was coming up with targets that we thought were, you know, really good targets. But, you know, as you go forward, for example, in Parkinson's disease, and I that the same will definitely hold true if you're just talking about aging in general. It is not a homogeneous population of patients. So that's one of the reasons that we think we haven't been able to make good drugs is, you know, you're treating all of these people as though they're the same. They may have different causes for the disease. They may respond very differently to drugs. You know, I always tell everybody, look at how just a single virus manifests so differently in different people, right? The COVID in the past couple of years, everybody has seen the difference of individuals and, and we're very much seeing that, I think, in the Parkinson space, and we will be seeing that in the aging space. So one of the things that we're working on now is an AI that will, for example, segment the population so that we can focus more on patients that have mitochondrial deficits because we're developing mitochondrial therapeutics. And then, of course, we're you know using this technology, we are able to put multiple shots on deck. You know, here we have more than one therapeutic that we're going after. We're not a single asset company. We're using multiples. 
but there's a lot of efficiency as far as these are all mitochondrial therapeutics. So, you know, we're able to use a lot of the same assays, a lot of the same expertise. So it's not taking us, you know, twice as long, anywhere near twice as long to go after two different targets within this pathway. There's a lot that we do. I I would say de-risking is (laughs) 80% of what we do as we think about, you know, progressing compounds forward. Can you see a world emerging where a software only approach could make sense? Like maybe once you guys succeed with your first drug, perhaps all of this infrastructure you've developed, and it sounds like it goes beyond just the bottom up model of the neuron, just listening to now around selection of molecules, maybe all this infrastructure that you developed has you starting to steer towards some kind of, I don't know, SaaS platform for big pharma or other research groups where, you know, they're getting access to to some kind of software platform that you guys provide. I I mean, it is strange that in in the land of biology, we don't yet have these big platforms that are multi-tenant platforms, like the ones that exist in a lot of adjacent industries. And I'm sure you guys thought at the beginning, oh, let's just build some amazing software and sell it to pharma. It didn't work as quickly as you'd like. But is it a world that's starting to emerge? Are there some examples, companies like Schrodinger or Recursion that are managing to pull off like sensible economic deals in your estimation? We thought about that, the big multi-tenant platforms, similar to what we did with the banking. I think similar to, to banking, you've got a lot of security concerns. Everybody is super paranoid about their IP and making sure that nobody has access to that. So you have to have a lot of those controls. But kind of you know, beyond that, I think we'll see more and more tools developing. But I think you're also going to start to see more more of the internal drug development, like Schrodinger is an example. They've got their own pipeline. They've got the pipeline that they spun out through Nimbus. 23andMe has a pipeline of over 50 small molecules that are now in their development that they've partnered with GSK. So you're seeing these, anyone that has the data and tools to do drug development is either independently or through partnerships doing the therapeutic development because they can just move so much faster than you know, trying to sell it to Pfizer and have Pfizer run projects using your software. And I think some of that is because you really need the biology and computational people talking closely together. And I think if you have that like vendor client relationship, you're going to end up having a really hard wall to throw information over. And biologists know what kind of questions they want to ask of the data and the computational people know how to interrogate the data, but don't have any idea what questions to ask. And bridging that gap is difficult if you're not like one cohesive team, which is something that, you know, Spring and I kind of have baked in here. I hope the the stress of building a company together to solve one of the world's great ailments keeps you cohesive and doesn't <laughs> create more stress. But so interesting, like the, the business model and the intersection of the technology with the, with the problem. And I, I want to spend just a little more time here before we maybe turn to the disease itself. But um, are there changes that you've observed over this last five or six years, let's say, you know, big platforms where you, you see the lab adopting a lot more technology in new and different ways, things that are in the cloud or that are SaaS services or different kinds of workflows? You know, companies like Benchling seem like they've found themselves in a lot of different people's labs. What would you say are the the kind of harbingers that there are some big changes underway and that we're getting a much more technology driven pharma universe? I think it definitely is happening. For us, it happened a little slower than we expected. It's sort of how quick is the adoption rate, I guess, is the question. And 
I had never really realized this before. And I, I found myself falling into this category of, you know, who are the early adopters? And I think you see a lot of early adopters in tech and in science. I think we've been trained to look for a lot of evidence that something really works before we adopt it. And I think that that takes out a lot of early adopters. Personally, once we reached that point where we were like, okay, you know, we've done multiple projects with multiple different groups. We know that this, you know, technology works. We are willing to go forward with it. I think that was a pretty key thing. And then other, you know, other people, we have been now approached by other groups after, you know, we, we felt confident enough to go forward with it. Because I think that's always a question too, you know, it, well, if it works, why aren't you using it? <laughs> and I think Schrodinger was an excellent example that you gave, which first they, they just kind of were software and then with Nimbus and now they're developing their own. And Schrodinger is one that is being used by so many people. It has been widely adopted. And that's one, you know, where we do virtual screening as well, but it's not terribly unique because Schrodinger, right? They were kind of the key, I would say the, the key players that made that happen. And we do see science, Spenchling is another excellent example. We do see people wanting to adopt these things and becoming more enthusiastic. It's taken a little longer than we would have thought, you know, we thought it would take a year or two before this is everywhere, sort of like the, the internet, you know, <laughs> but it's been a little slower than that. There's such a huge problem space that any of these tools that are broadly applicable, um, you know, at some point, I, I, I think do need to be opened up. Like Vinceri is very focused on mitochondrial therapeutics and Neuro Initiative is kind of more broadly looking at, um, you know, neurodegenerative pathways and age-related things, but we're not looking at oncology at all. And there are a ton of people that are trying to accelerate efforts there. And you know, there's just an almost infinite space of human disease and disorder that could be addressed with the right combination of tools. And so I could definitely see expanding the, the collaborative space there. Let's talk a little bit about aging as a bigger picture family of, I guess, disorders or processes inside that family are the neurodegenerative, again, processes or disorders and where we situate Parkinson's. Maybe for somebody who doesn't know a lot about Parkinson's spring, you could give us a little context on like how to think about it. Where does it fall on the spectrum? I mean, how often does it happen to people? Do a lot of folks have some very milder bits of it that maybe don't make their way to being labeled Parkinson's? It must be a, a process that is kind of inevitable for everyone. Excellent and interesting question. The reason we think about it as an age-related disease is because aging is by far the biggest risk factor for Parkinson's disease. That's the biggest connection. And the average age at onset is around 60-ish, you know, give or take, although there are some cases that are early onset, pretty rare. This is not the only brain region that's affected, but the brain region that's affected that underlies the motor symptoms of Parkinson's disease that you see, the tremor, the rigidity, postural instability, those things. There's a region in the brain that degenerates, and you do naturally see that very, very slow degeneration of that region with age, but it is not like what you see in the disease. It's very much accelerated in the disease. There is an aging component to it, but this seems to be this particular area is affected. And we know that this particular area is very sensitive to mitochondrial insults. So, you know, there were a group of people way back in the day in the 80s that took a what was advertised as a synthetic form of heroin that they took this and overnight they developed Parkinson's disease and what it was was a mitochondrial toxin so that was kind of the first clue and then since then you know multiple of the genetic Mendelian genetic mutations that cause the disease early onset forms of the disease are related to mitochondria so we know there's quite a bit supporting that these cells are particularly susceptible to mitochondria whereas you know for aging there are many other hallmarks of aging is, you know, you know, eight or nine, depending on who you talk to, mitochondria being one of them. So maybe that if you're 
mitochondrial are damaged, you go more towards something like Parkinson's disease or heart disease, also very dependent on mitochondria. Whereas if you have, I don't know, um, genomic instability, you go towards some other disease indication. Okay, yeah, interesting. So it's a false friend in that sense. Like it's an area of um, degeneration, everything, I guess, in the body and everything in the brain slowly is degenerating as, as you age. But here we find a phenomenon that really accelerates and it's related to the to mitochondria. So then what's so and, and if that seems like the consensus view these days on on what gets it, what, you know, some, part of it may be uh, genetic, but are there other environmental variables that people think are the, the triggers or the causes? I mean, apart from having taken that drug in the 80s. That... There are definitely uh, environmental factors that have been proposed, including some pesticides, for example, paraquat or rotenone. And again, these are mitochondrial type toxins. You know, if you're a person who works a lot with these pesticides, you're definitely at higher risk. With something like Parkinson's disease and just age-related disease in general, it's kind of tough to go back and pinpoint what it was because it doesn't manifest overnight, right? So, Oh, and it could have been very brief encounter with something that was a mitochondrial toxin. I see. Exactly. Like 20 years ago, and you may not remember, you know, it's quite tough to do the epidemiology of something like Parkinson's disease, where you're, you're sort of retrospectively looking at the last 40 years of somebody's life. But yeah, there definitely are, you know, I, I would say stay away from, from known or other pesticides that may cause uh, these types of things. And you mentioned you asked how many people are affected about 10 million people worldwide. So it's not a small problem. It's the second most common neurodegenerative disease after Alzheimer's. And what's the spectrum of impact? I mean, I, I mean, I think we all know someone somewhere in our world that has been uh, impacted by Parkinson's. And uh, it seems like that it moves at different paces for different folks. And is that connected to this underlying theory of, the, of what causes it, like people have different levels of mitochondrial damage. There are other problems as well that could manifest that could make it go faster or slower. So, you know, mitochondria are, we believe, the main reason that these cells degenerate. But there are other abnormalities as well. So, for example, mitochondria need to be broken down by going inside the lysosomes to be broken down. So if you have then deficits in mitochondria and lysosomes, then you, you may get a double hit. So we know, for example, people who have mutations in, in a gene called GBA are at higher risk of developing Parkinson's disease, and it progresses faster once they get the disease. And they have deficits in lysosomal function. So, you know, it's now you get into the interplay of, okay, mitochondria need to be broken down, they go into the lysosome. And if you have deficits in that, that may be a double hit that you get. And it's not just a genetic on off risk factor kind of thing, like with type one, type two diabetes, where some folks, there's something that's just switched off. And so from early in life, they've got type 1 diabetes. Here you're saying there's a switch that makes the risk factor and later there may be environmental stimulus and then aging and the accumulation somewhere later in life, you now start manifesting uh, the symptoms. There are risk factors and then there are kind of mutations that manifest in a more Mendelian fashion. But even those mutations, genetic mutations... Where Mendelian is a little bit of a technical term, meaning like, yeah, it's on or no, it's off, like binary. Yeah. Correct. But even in those cases, there seems to be some kind of a additional factor because not everybody will get the disease. Even in those cases, you have people who have the genetic mutation and are fine. So it's not 100% penetrant. And now, so with having brought us up a little bit closer to understanding maybe the theory of the of what's going wrong, what's your intervention? What's this, mo what's this magic molecule supposed to do? 
The, our lead program, we have multiple programs uh, in the works, and our lead program is working to increase the process of mitophagy, which is basically how your mitochondria get degraded inside the cell. And this is not an unusual thing that happens. You know, your mitochondria get damaged inside the cell regularly. The average life cycle of a mitochondria is 30, 40 days in a brain cell, but you need to be able to clear them when they do become damaged. And uh, that process, first of all, declines with age. So this is, again, another reason why this is an age-related disease. And two, if you have a genetic mutation, for example, in pink one or Parkinson's that causes Parkinson's disease, this process is very deficient. So the small molecules we have are increasing this process of mitophagy and uh, thereby clearing the damaged mitochondria. The damaged mitochondria can also damage. It's not just that you don't, you know, it's a double whammy. You don't get happy, healthy mitochondria and you have these damaged mitochondria that are lingering, that are damaging the cells. So definitely want to clear those damaged mitochondria. Fascinating. And this is uh, something that you've fiddled around with in your computational model. And you saw your garbage collectors getting excited from because of this molecule. It was like giving them coffee or something. And you thought, well, let's see if we can synthesize this molecule in real life. We'll have to create Vincere Biosciences in order to do that. And you'll that, that, that happens on the bench top, I guess. And so you did it first in vitro. And then are we getting somewhere close to people? as you mentioned, start in vitro, you know, you, you, you synthesize the molecules, you see, you, you try to decipher some structure activity relationship with these, and then you do them in cells, and then you do them in animals. Um, and so we're in the animal testing phase now, and we're hoping to put them in human in the next year and a half or so. Getting close. Yeah, wow, it's so exciting. Gosh. And you know, you mentioned it's the second most prevalent neurodegenerative disease. If I had a model of neurons and I could fiddle with all the different ways they can be amped up or go haywire. I presume I'd also be working on the number one neurodegenerative disease as well. Yeah, Alzheimer's absolutely is a major problem. I think if we lived long enough, all of us would probably eventually get Alzheimer's. It is uh, definitely age-related and this is currently the sixth leading cause of death. But both Parkinson's and Alzheimer's, you know, a lot of other diseases we've been able to sort of tackle them and either they're plateauing or decreasing. We've done really well with infectious diseases like HIV going down. Parkinson's and Alzheimer's are just going up in prevalence. And with the aging population, it's going to be a major problem. So yeah, we are looking at Alzheimer's too. One difference between Parkinson's and Alzheimer's and why we started with Parkinson's disease. With Parkinson's disease, there have been quite a few, a dozen or so Mendelian genes that have been implicated in causing the disease. So really establishing that cause and effects relationship solidly that those gave us a lot of clues as to where to look. Whereas for Alzheimer's disease, it's not as clear. You have a couple of genetic mutations that cause you know, very aggressive kind of early onset forms of the disease. And then you have APOE, which is a risk factor. And basically, it's really hard to establish that cause and effect relationship. So by the time that you look at somebody who has Alzheimer's disease or Parkinson's disease, it, everything has gone wrong. So, you know, you, it's really hard to say which of those is just a correlation versus a cause and effect relationship. But absolutely, we are very interested in Alzheimer's and, and we are working on that is just, you know, deprioritized because of risk. Just because it's such a messy, your models don't have any special insights for us? We do. I mean, we've, we've done some analyses and there, there are certainly some, some clues and interesting things that are starting to emerge, but they're that real clarity hasn't emerged for Alzheimer's like there is for Parkinson's, where we're pretty confident that this approach is going to 
have disease modifying effect for Parkinson's disease. The nice thing about Alzheimer's though as well, there there is a lot of new funding going into basic research for Alzheimer's. So there are new clues coming out. And that's an area that I would love to spin up a team of Alzheimer's experts to take the tools that we have and apply them in that space and, and really drive forward and see where we can get. I think there's potential there and there's clearly a need. It's been a, a resource and prioritization issue at this point. Do you go? Oh, hey, no pressure. I mean, I hope you guys don't feel like I'm pressuring you to go solve all the world's problems. <laughs> but you did briefly mention. It is top of mind. I think I would say that particularly for APOE mediated Alzheimer's disease, it's it's definitely something that is of interest and it we do put a lot of pressure on ourselves to think about it. Can you explain APOE mediated and also say the word amyloid again? Because you guys sort of dropped it and moved on. I think a lot of people heard that, oh, we figured out what causes Alzheimer's a few years ago and it doesn't come up a lot anymore. Yeah, amyloid was kind of the leading hypothesis for Alzheimer's. And it, it was quite unfortunate because I think a lot of eggs were put into that basket um, in it, it, kind of this hypothesis that you have this uh, accumulation of the amyloid amyloid and that's really what's causing the disease and if you can clear that then you can you know stop the disease from progressing and that has not been the case unfortunately you know there were quite a few different approaches going after amyloid that you know they were base inhibitors that were sort of indirectly going after it and then there were antibodies amyloid antibodies that were trying to clear it from the extracellular space and i think you know what we see is that you can clear amyloid but it doesn't alter the progression of the disease and this was actually quite a, a shock you know i don't know if you followed the aducanumab story uh, with Biogen's new drug that was actually approved much to many people's surprise because you know it, it did clear the amyloid so it was successful in that but it didn't actually affect progression of the disease and I think you know there's a lot of you know well would it work if you had gone earlier you know maybe this is a, a they had tried it kind of too late um, so there's still a lot of questions around it but I think it's it's unfortunate to go after you know put many eggs into that basket so then the next is tau which is again another protein you get these tau tangles in the brain uh, so that's kind of the next the next approach that's being done but APOE I'm excited about because it is APOE is again a risk factor. It is not a, a genetic mutation per se, where you have there are three different forms of APOE. And depending on which one you have, and you have two copies, so you get one from mom, one from dad. There's APOE two, three, and four. So you can have any combination of those three options. And depending on which one you have, it greatly affects your risk for Alzheimer's disease. So three is the normal. If you have three, three, you have average risk for Alzheimer's. If you have even one copy of two or two twos that decreases your risk for Alzheimer's disease. And if you have two copies of the four, that increases your risk by like 14, 15 X. So it's quite a bit. It's again, not fully penetrant. So there are clearly some additional potentially environmental things that are happening that are affecting that. And APOE is a lipid carrier. So <laughs> it gives us some clues, uh, you know, as to the pathways that are involved. So we're definitely interested in that. And, and I think that's, you know, if you can, again, enrich the population to just people who carry the APOE4, for example, allele, then you're looking at a much more homogeneous population of patients than everybody with Alzheimer's disease. Fascinating. Well, maybe we will get a chance to tackle that one next. Maybe one last topic for us to explore is um, the company building story. I mean, we got the backstory. And I guess you guys are a startup drug discovery business at this point with your think tank over there that'll generate, you know, the next company, hopefully kind of in the, in, in the model of, um, 
of some companies these days like Cambrian Bioscience, like folks that have a platform company that generates specific product companies. Have you raised venture capital? Are you, I don't know, give us a little bit like the entrepreneur's kind of update on uh, how the business building is going. Yeah, it's been an interesting path. So Spring mentioned we we kind of started out bootstrapping until we got some grant funding. And that was our kind of initial validation that this was, you know, we had something here that, that had some potential, raised some angel uh, capital from individuals and small family offices. And, and our, our process has been, you know, kind of about once a year, we we go out and raise a tranche of, of capital and um, set milestones for what we're going to do the next year. And so we've pretty consistently done this where we, you know, make plans, execute on those, we hit those milestones. And then, you know, the existing cohort is enthusiastic about continuing to support the project. And then we bring on a few other uh, new people. And so that's been growing now for eight years or so with a cohort of individuals and family offices. We've had some good partnerships with um, like Viva BioInnovator, which is one of the biggest uh, biotech investors and also a synthetic chemistry uh, partner participating uh, in our, our last round. And this is a little contrarian too. I mean, you're a bit of an outlier on a lot of dimensions and this is one as well, right? I mean, you didn't just go raise 10 million of venture from one of the big biotech or BAMED or Third Rock or somebody like that, you are, are keeping a, a quite a low profile in some ways. Yeah, we did say we weren't in the normal category at the beginning, <laughs> living up to that. We, it makes sense, I think, to try to de-risk as much as possible along the way and not blow a lot of money. So, I, you know, we have seen a lot of companies just kind of raise a lot of money and then make a lot of mistakes quickly. So we've been able to come this far very in a very capital efficient manner. And I think that's really great for the people who have invested in the company, because obviously the return on their investment is going to be very nice. We will, I think, you know, once we get to human clinical trials, because they are so expensive, particularly for diseases like Parkinson's or Alzheimer's, we will need to either raise venture capital or partner with a pharma uh, company at that point. But we're not, we weren't seeing really a big reason to raise a lot of money really early when we knew that it would, would not cost us that much to get to the next steps. So it sounds like it's a year or two in the future that I should set a reminder to check the front page of the New York Times and see how successful that next phase of the trial has been. I mean, it has been really fascinating and, and so interesting talking with you guys. I think it's amazing to get this level of insight, double clicking all the way into two of the most prevalent neurodegenerative. I mean, I think we all worry about these as we age. And I, I'm so appreciative that you were able to spend time talking to us about your really interesting and cutting edge way of tackling it. Thank you. If I can just say one more thing, I know we talked a lot and, and I'm a neuroscientist by training. So this is maybe, maybe why the, the uh, conversation veers this way. But once we started to look at mitochondrial therapeutics, we are seeing that there's a lot of potential impact outside of the nervous system as well. So, you know, your heart, kidneys, liver, there are a lot of tissues that are highly dependent on mitochondria. I mean, all of your cells have mitochondria, but there are some tissues that are more energetically dependent. So we're really now eager to see kind of just a general impact on aging. Of course, we're starting with Parkinson's disease, but just a general impact on aging with, uh, you know, making your mitochondria healthier. Are we able to return your cells back to health as well? So it sounds like it's a year or two in the future that 
I should set a reminder to check the front page of the New York Times and see how successful that <laughs> next phase of the trial has been. I mean, it has been really fascinating and, and so interesting talking with you guys. I think it's amazing to get this level of insight, double clicking all the way in two of the most prevalent neurodegenerative. I mean, I think we all worry about these as we age. And I, I'm so appreciative that you were able to spend time talking to us about your really interesting and cutting edge way of tackling it. I mean, it's certainly one of the, the hallmarks of aging, so may not be the only one. It's unlikely to be the only one. But, you know, while everybody else is working on other factors, we're happy to be contributing to this one. Well, Spring and Andy, thank you again. 